All right, I invite you to turn once again in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Scooch a little closer here. This is a heavy lectern. The Gospel of Mark, uh, we're in chapter 6, and we'll look at the text here in just a second. Um, A wise friend of mine um, once encouraged me, I think I was discouraged about some um, challenges in the realm of parenting. And he said something to the effect of like, you know, you know that you're doing okay as a parent. That's not really how he said it. I think he said it more as a negative. He's like, when you find yourself repeating the same thing over and over again as a parent, you actually know that you're, you're doing your job. <laughs> you know, it, it feels like you're failing, right? Because you, you have to keep on, you know, persevering in trying to instruct your children in certain things. Um, and his point was, actually, that's a sign that you're succeeding uh, because you, you're persevering in the work that you need to do because we actually learn a lot by repetition, don't we? And uh, apparently... Jesus understood that, and Mark understood that, and those of us who have had the responsibility to teach Mark are feeling that a little bit, where the themes that he uses, he seems to cycle back to the same message very often. So uh, here we are once again, maybe hearing a little bit of a repeat of some of the themes we've heard along our journey here in Mark's gospel, but it's a good thing because we can say, here we go again. Uh, because we're going to continue to grow and learn in some of the same ways we have been along the way here. So as we turn to Mark 6, um, we're going to be looking at really verse 6b, uh, the very end of verse 6 of chapter 6, down to verse 29, and we're going to kind of cheat and borrow verse 30 um, from, I think, Bill, are you teaching next week? So I'm going to borrow verse 30. I'll give it back to you at the end. but uh, they're kind of, it's, verse 30 is kind of like a, a bridge between uh, two sections. Uh, so we're going to look at that section. Before we do, let's just remember real quick what just happened in verses 1 through 6a. Just anybody, just give me a quick summary, like one sentence. What happened at the very beginning of chapter 6? It's essentially rejected. Jesus is rejected where? In his hometown. And that's, that's kind of a big deal, right? Like, the beginning of Mark's gospel is, the king is coming, and oh, he's here, and this is his message. And then he goes to his hometown and he's rejected. So, I mean, this theme of the unexpected nature of the kingdom from the kingdom parables is just all through Mark's gospel. And here's another scenario where Jesus is rejected in the place where he should be accepted, right? And now, with that kind of backdrop to where we're we're at, let's read, we're going to read all the way through verse 6b on down to verse 30, okay? So, uh, Mark reads this way. In verse uh, verse 6b, he says, And he went went about... Excuse me, let me try and start that again. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. 
He charged them to take nothing for their journey, except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not, and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if in any place, uh, and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him to be put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist, the baptizer. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And then verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So as we look at this passage, I think that one of the first things we need to do together is we need to struggle a little bit with the structure of this passage. Fascinating story being told, gruesome story being told, lots of points of interest in the narrative, in the account. But we need to ask the question about why Mark has chosen to structure the passage like he has. This section is another one of these sandwiches that Mark's gospel gives us, right? 
And I, I hope that illustration, that metaphor of a sandwich is helpful for you and not a distraction. What, what do we mean when we say Mark uses sandwiches in his narratives? Do you, do you understand what we're saying he's doing? Often what we're saying he's doing is he starts into the details of one story or narrative, starts to tell that. In this case, Jesus sending the, the disciples out on a mission. He starts into that. Then he interrupts himself with kind of another story. And then he comes back and finishes the story he started. So that's what we mean by sandwiching. He's kind of starting and interrupting and then finishing. But he's actually not really interrupting. He's kind of bringing these two stories together to make a point. So in this case, it's kind of an imbalanced sandwich, right? Like we have verses 7 through 13 is the, is the top piece of bread on the sandwich. And there's, there's some substance to that piece of bread there, right? Then 14 to 29 is a lot of meat on the sandwich and maybe some vegetables, I guess, if you like vegetables in your sandwiches, right? But there's a lot of material there, 17 to 29, And then verse 30 on the bottom, which, you know, the ESV has as the next section, which, you know, there's an argument you can make for that. But verse 30 just says they came back and reported what happened on their mission to Jesus, right? So it's like just a very, very thin, I mean, it's not even, it's not even substantive. It's like a piece of paper on the bottom, you know? So um, a weird sandwich. But you, you see... In the middle of their mission and in the middle of, in the middle of talking about Jesus, talking about sending them out, he pauses and he talks about the, the execution of John the Baptist by Herod. Why would he do that is a key question we need to grapple with as we try and understand this passage. Um, this strange sandwich and, and the, 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 the point that Mark is making with it is, I think, one of the keys to actually understanding the whole point of the passage to begin with. Um, but this, this strange sandwich isn't the only thing that's kind of strange about the way this passage works. Like, try and think about what time frame we're in as we're reading through this story, right? You look at verses 7 through 13, And Mark is kind of describing in the present tense, I mean, the kind of the past present, like he's describing these events happening, right? Jesus sends out the disciples, he commissions them. They go out and they start doing these things. Then in verse 14, Herod hears of it. What does Herod hear of? What do you think it's talking about there? Ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus to his disciples. Exactly. Herod hears news reports about what's happening. So, so, so far, we're kind of still on the same, you know, flow of time, so to speak. And, and then Herod starts to think about what, what does this mean? What is this? Right. And there's this discussion maybe Herod's having with some other people or maybe Mark is just recording kind of what several, several people think this could be what's happening in Jesus's ministry. But then notice what happens in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John. So now we're actually going, no longer are we in the same time frame, right? Now we have a historical flashback 
where now we're stepping back and getting an explanation of, wait a minute, why is John the Baptist dead? Because the last time we met John the Baptist was at the beginning of chapter 1, where it said that John, before John was imprisoned, or, or at that time John was imprisoned, something like that. But we haven't encountered in, you know, the, the story of John being executed yet. So now he's doing this, this like historical you know, flashback to, okay, here's the execution of John the Baptist and how it happened. So, so you, have, you have a lot of layers in trying to understand this sandwich and the sequence of time that John is, Mark is using as he recounts the story to us. Um, so what is the connection then that is linking the first section of this passage where Jesus commissions his disciples to go out on mission and it really not commissions, but actually sends them. He already commissioned them. He sends them. And then this interaction about John the Baptist beheading by Herod. What's, what's the link? What's the connection between? And I think, go ahead, Rachel. So that question about Jesus' identity is key to what Herod is struggling with as he sees these things happening in the life of Jesus and in the ministry of his disciples. Yes. So there's this question about his identity, and um, Mark Mark is helping disciples. I mean, we need to remember there's an audience to this text that is, you know, the, the early church. And as Mark is writing this, he's helping people understand these things in real time, too, as he's unfolding these events. And um, bringing these two stories that seem like they're disconnected together, Mark is, is pushing us to address the question of who Jesus is but also shift attention to a little bit of one of the other questions we've identified in Mark's gospel. And that is, what does it mean to follow him? Because now these disciples are starting to carry out his mission. They're starting to follow what he's asking them to do. And things start happening. And what is that going to look like? I mean, there's a, there's a measure of anticipation that we should have. Okay, now the king is starting his program. What's the program going to look like? And with that anticipation, we get a lot of unexpected twists and turns in this particular, particular story. I think that Mark's retelling here of Herod's execution of John the Baptist is really intentional. In my first reading of it, I thought, why is he doing this? Um, in the first reading of it, it seems like he's just recording historical events for us. But like I think Joel has mentioned, when Mark tells a story, he's teaching us with that story, right? He's intentionally teaching us as he, as he explains these events. Mark and Jesus are shepherding us through this passage. I think we have just a quick moment for an aside um, that I think relates to, to what we're doing here this morning. Um, I had a chance to attend a conference, uh, I think maybe around 2016, and not related to the conference content, uh, the guy that I was staying with was given an assignment to preach one passage, one verse, 
uh, in the upcoming Sunday. And he was telling me about his, his preparation to teach Ecclesiastes 12.11. Ecclesiastes 12.11 says, it says, um, the words of the wise are like goads, like a cattle prod. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Talking about all of the revelation of God's word. They are given by one shepherd. And I had never really encountered that single text. I had never thought about that text carefully. And reflecting on that um, and really hearing his reflections on that text really transformed the way I think about my own meditation on God's word, study of God's word, and hearing of preaching and teaching. And that is understanding that there is a shepherd who through words that were revealed a millennia ago is intending to shepherd my life through these words right now. And as I, as I studied this text, I continued to think about like, what is Mark's shepherding intent? What is Jesus's shepherding intent in my life by bringing the beheading of John the Baptist together with the commissioning, the sending of the disciples on mission? And I think that there is a shepherding intent. I think it's deeply encouraging to us as we study scripture in general to have that kind of mentality. And here as we encounter uh, these reflections from, um, from, from this event and these events brought together, uh, we can know that wherever we are and whatever we're experiencing, there is one shepherd who is actively shepherding us even in a way that spans across the ages. So I think that what Mark is driving at, what Jesus is driving at for us this morning, is just this simple question, what does Jesus ask of his followers? What is it that Jesus asks of his followers? And we're going to see this just kind of unfold progressively from the passage. So let's ask that question looking first at verses 6 through 13. What does Jesus ask of his followers? So in verses 6 through 13, we see kind of this unique sending of the disciples out on mission. Jesus asks his followers here to depend on their king. We have, we have seen throughout Mark this emphasis on the, the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, as the, the promised king. And now, as he sends them out, he's inviting them, he's asking them to depend on him. Notice that he sends them out two by two. And here, as, as he sends them, we, we remember back to chapter 3 and verse 14, where Jesus appointed the disciples. And do you remember when he appointed the disciples? He appointed them, and then he, he called them to something. He called them to two main activities. Do you remember what those two activities were? Bill does. I think, Bill, I think that was Bill's text. So, yeah. He invited them to be with him, right? So there was, this, there was this understanding that if you're going to be my follower, a relationship with Jesus was a key part of that. And spending time in presence with him was a key part of that. And then he invited them or called them to, to go out, to be sent. He also gave them authority and power to, uh, to cast out demons, to have power over unclean spirits. But up to this point, we haven't actually seen Jesus really send them out to go do stuff, right? 
up to this point, we've seen them be with him. And now we, we turn and we start to see Jesus sending them out to go do things. Uh, maybe uh, as you think about this, you realize, well, hold on a second. We're in chapter 6. And in chapter 8, Peter declares to the question, who do you think I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And then in the next breath, he turns around. Peter turns around and rebukes Jesus for saying he's going to suffer. And Jesus rebukes him and says, you know, get behind me, Satan. So, so Peter doesn't understand why Jesus has come yet here in chapter 6, right? But Jesus is still sending them out. So the disciples are being sent out on a mission even before they fully and really understand Jesus' mission. And maybe, maybe that's one reason why they're sent out in pairs. Uh, maybe also they have complementing gifts. Um, the two of them together can have, you know, two different sets of eyes to assess the situation. Uh, there's accountability that will help them as they continue to learn what Jesus is calling them to. But it's kind of a, it's kind of a strange kind of tension that we're feeling as we see that they're, they're given this command to go, even though it, it feels like maybe they're not quite ready yet. But they are also given authority and power over unclean spirits. And so as they're, as, they're, as they're being sent, there's this strange mix of doubt and expectation that I think we're right to feel as we continue to read. We're, we're leaning forward on our seats to see what happens. And if we are, then I think we're getting the weight of what Mark is recording for us here. In this, in this sending, I want to zero in on two facets of Jesus' sending of them. Um, first, I want, to, I want to just focus for a second on the... Um, the, the luggage limits, the baggage limits that are, are given here. Um, and then I also want to focus on the performance expectations that Jesus has for them. So let's look at their luggage allowance. So you're packing for a trip. You've got everything laid out. You've got your, you're just taking a carry-on. Um, you got everything laid out in your bed, ready to pack it up in, you know, in your carry-on. And here Jesus walks in the room and he looks at you and he's like, you've got your tunic, you've got your belt, you've got your sandals on. Grab your staff and, and go. That's, that's what Jesus is, you know, essentially asking of these men as they prepare. Don't take any money is probably one of, of all of these, the one that is hardest for us to recognize. And, and, and that wasn't because they were a cashless society and he, they could just use, you know, a QR code to pay for things. So I, I I'm not sure if there really is a strong connection here, but if you do do a comparison with the Exodus, with the Passover, Israel, as they prepare to you know, eat the Passover meal, they're basically in the same condition. It's this idea of readiness to go. But there is, I think, in the Exodus, there's this dependence concept as well, that there's going to be a provision that isn't going to come from us um, in the same way the disciples are, um, are invited to depend on their king. So, so what, what is the point of this luggage allowance? I, I don't think it's, you know, just like reducing carbon footprint, um, living a simple life. Uh, Jesus is asking his followers to depend on him. Um, and that does drive at the identity question. You know, is he somebody that they can depend on? Is a question he has been working on helping them understand. He's, he's inviting his followers not to depend on their own supply, right? And, and this is, I think, for us 
an invitation as well. Jesus is asking his disciples to go places that leave them wondering why they lack in some category. He's asking his disciples to go out with unanswered questions about where they're going and where their provision is going to come from. I think if you think about the original audience of Mark's gospel, I think there would have been a challenge and an encouragement, a comfort to these words as they thought about them. Um, it's, it's a call for, for them, it's a call for us to live outside of our normal support structure on some level, but it's also a comfort because for many of those first century believers, this is exactly what following Jesus had cost them. And now as they looked back on their bank accounts and wondered if it was all worth it, Mark is reminding them that they were in the best of company. And so they should take comfort. So that's, that's the luggage allowance that is inviting the disciples to depend on Jesus. But here there's another part to their dependence piece in this, and that is the performance goals that Jesus sets for them as they go. What's, what's Jesus' expectation of the result of their mission? You, you see it there, is it in verse uh, 10? Whenever you enter a house, stay there, there till you depart from there, um, which is this kind of concept of being received with hospitality. So, you know, if they welcome you, if they receive you, stay there. So there's an expectation of some measure of success, right? People are willing to receive you. But then he continues and he says, And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So the disciples here are given kind of this twofold expectation about their performance results. They're kind of mixed. On the one hand, they're going to be in places where they're welcomed, and on the other, they're going to be in places where they're not well received. And um, I don't know about you, but um, you know, being given instructions kind of prophetically beforehand about the results of my work, including, you know, what we're tempted to define as mission failure, is not something that I'm particularly excited about hearing. There's something ominous and scary about being given these instructions to go on a mission that actually include the expectation that you're going to go to people who will not receive you. So the disciples, again, are being invited to depend on their king in this. They're, they're not being told that the performance expectation for them is 160 or even 40-fold increase, right? They are, they are told uh, previously something to that effect about the work of the gospel on its own, but in the specific instance of their work, they aren't given any kind of statistical expectations, they are to expect mixed results. And those results and how to respond to them are things Jesus is asking them to depend on him for. So the first thing this text, I think, in that first section is inviting. Jesus is asking his followers to depend on him as their king. The next thing we encounter here coming to the big section, the, the meat in the sandwich, Jesus is asking his followers to repent from their sins. And actually, this theme reaches back into the first section in verse 12, where the disciples are on their mission. And the very first thing that's on their lips on their mission is they are preaching repentance. As they go out on mission, they do miracles and call people to repent. 
And I kind of half suspect, right, that work of Jesus' ministry and the disciples' ministry eventually comes to be reported to Herod. And in Herod's hearing, this is a little bit of just my imagination, but I can kind of imagine, first, Herod is hearing the news about the miracles, right? There's all these crazy things happening, and that's what kind of stirs up the interest of people, and the report comes to Herod, these miracles are happening. And then Herod says, what are these itinerant traveling healers teaching? And what does he hear back? It's a message of repentance from sins. And what does Herod think at that point, right? At this point, Herod's conscience is triggered. His fears are realized, and he thinks that John the Baptist, whom he had beheaded, has been raised from the dead because his conscience is still haunting him. Mark is inviting us, I think, in this section into the struggle of Herod's conscience. His conscience is still struggling with the call to repent from his sins. And the rest of the story that we read, then, is really a tragedy. But it's yet again an unexpected tragedy. It's not exactly the kind of tragedy you would expect. Despite the gruesome details, Mark retells John the Baptist's execution in such a way that we're left pitying Herod more than we're left pitying John the Baptist. I mean, Herod is the one who's called a king here. He's actually really just a puppet governor underneath Roman emperor's authority, and yet he's the one who is a political ruler. And yet, does Herod get anything that he wants in all of this? Herodias does. Herod should be the one who has no fear, and yet he's controlled, he's a slave to his fears. John the Baptist should be the one who's displayed as cowering and trembling. But instead, all we see is, all we know about John in this story is he boldly called Herod to repent. And so the tragedy is really a tragedy about Herod not listening to his conscience. Well, Herod is, um, is, is challenged here. You actually kind of see multiple layers of opportunities that Herod has to respond um, to, the, to the invitation to repentance. Um, Herod here at this point is, he's thinking that his, his karma is catching up to him. He must be being punished for the evil deeds he, he performed against John the Baptist. So it's like, it's like back when he heard John, his conscience was active, right? He heard John and he feared. He heard John and he was puzzled by his preaching. And so his conscience was active in all of that. And then his conscience is so active that he refuses to kill him initially, even though his wife Herodias wants him to. And instead he puts him in jail and he continues to listen to him. So his conscience is continuing to work. And even now, John the Baptist is dead. His conscience continues to, to convict and to challenge him. And yet we, we will see that he continues to, to fail to respond in repentance. I think that Herod provides a really rich study of the fear of man. Um, and we, we don't really have time today to go deeply into that topic. But let's just quickly identify all of the things that Herod fears here. I mean, look at what he's afraid of. What are some of the, the things in this passage you see that he's afraid of? There's, I've seen four different things. What do you, what do you see 
in the in the passage. Verse twenty, he feared John. So he he reveres, respects, fears John, and in that case, in verse twenty, it's so he doesn't kill him at that point, right? Even though his wife wants him to. Good. What else? He knew he was a righteous man. Good, which is kind of part of his his respect for John. And his his uh, his fear of him. Good. He fears the guests at the end, right? Because he's made this oath in front of them. He's talked really big, and does he really want to kill John the Baptist at that point? It says he's actually deeply. What does it say? Deeply sorry about it. He doesn't want this to happen, but he's controlled by the fear of man at the end. Very clearly at that party. If we jump all the way back up to verse fourteen. I mean, isn't it kind of superstitious that he's afraid John the Baptist has been raised from the dead? There's a little bit of fear there, right? So that's another one. And um, there's, a, there's a great Chinese phrase um, that just like really, it, it, it puts wife and fear together. It's like we would say the fear of man. He has the fear of wife, <laughs> right? Um, Herodias is saying, Herodias is saying, this guy needs to die, right? And because of that, he puts him in prison. He puts John in prison because he's afraid of Herodias. Um, so we, we see how enslaved Herod is to his fears. I don't think that's the primary point of this passage, but it is the barrier and the hurdle that keeps John from repenting of his sin. Um, so here, John the Baptist is playing the role of the king's herald He's that voice in the wilderness saying the king is coming. And in that, he's chosen to go right after uh, the ruler there in Galilee, after Herod, the, the king, calling him to repentance. And John is preaching Jesus's message ahead of him, preaching a message of repentance, which is exactly what Jesus preached as well. The lesson, I think, from the mess of Herod's execution of John here. It drives us to consider what repentance really looks like. Herod, we can see throughout this story, he toys with repentance. He, he thought that there was some wisdom in John, something even attractive in John's teaching, but he's unwilling to embrace the cost of repentance. He, he couldn't part with his lust, and that's even seen not only in his persistence to have his brother's wife as his own, but also the, the stomach-turning scene at his birthday party with um, his brother's wife's daughter, who, who's not even named here in, in Mark, uh, but other Gospels name her as Salome. His conscience had so many different opportunities, and yet again and again, he refuses to heed it. I, I, don't, I don't know who today needs to hear this, but... If your conscience is working on you right now to repent of some particular sin that you're controlled by, I think looking at Herod and his refusal and his eventual demise is really important for you today. Herod left John in jail, probably thinking he was giving himself some proper time to consider everything and make a reasonable choice. He was delaying a proper response to his his conscience. He might have even left him in jail telling himself that this was a positive step toward giving him a chance to hear more from John. But what Herod needed to do was stop bargaining with his conscience. He needed to fully embrace the cost of repentance. He needed to cut out the t- tumor. 
And, and there's just no way that you can do that without pain and without experiencing the consequences of repentance. So while Herod waited for a suitable, opportune day to repent, Herodias did too. And her day came. And that leaves us with this awful ending to the story here, with the delivery of a platter with the head of John the Baptizer on it. Uh, Jesus expects his followers to repent. He invites his followers to repent. And as we close, we come to, I think, what actually may be the most important takeaway from this passage. So we've seen, you know, we're thinking about this question, what does Jesus ask of his disciples? We've seen that he asks us to depend on him and to repent of our sins. And the last thing that we see is Jesus asks his followers to, to surrender control over outcomes. Jesus asks his followers to surrender control over outcomes. So we could just use those three words, depend, repent, and surrender. Um, it sounds like, a, sounds like a sermon from when I was a kid in a, you know, in a real, uh, real loud preacher voice. I can hear a preacher uh, making those three points. Um, but I think that this is what, what Mark is after for us as we look at this text, especially this last one, surrendering the outcomes and the control over outcomes. The way that Mark arranges these two stories and puts the sending of the disciples on mission and then their report as bookends of the execution of John the Baptist, I think this becomes the, the focus for our story. It, it, it causes us to ask these kinds of questions. What does Jesus' rejection in Galilee mean for our discipleship, for our following of Jesus? What, what does Jesus' instruction to the disciples, that they are going to be rejected in certain places, what does that teach us about our following Jesus and our expectations for that? The same for us. That's the right answer. What, what does Herod's execution of John the Baptist, and this is kind of the, the, the weighted conclusion Mark is inviting us to, what does John the Baptist's beheading mean for our following of Jesus and our expectations there? I think all of these events are an invitation from Jesus. Jesus asks his followers to surrender control over the outcome of their lives. It's, it's strange that in the story of the execution of John the Baptist, it appears the only person who really got what they wanted was Herodias. It, there, there's just tons of injustice that we see in this, in the story. We're not given a divine reason behind it. Mark doesn't interpret it for us in that way. We're just invited by Jesus to surrender control of outcomes in our following of him. And then in verse 30, we hear that the disciples returned from their mission and they all still have their heads for now. What should we expect as we follow Jesus? And, and, and maybe it's helpful to notice what Mark doesn't account, account or record for us in this scenario yet. Um, he, he doesn't point ahead to what's coming for Jesus as he goes to Jerusalem. He doesn't point to what's ahead for Herod when he himself is part of the scandal of the decision to make to, to execute Jesus as well. He doesn't say anything about all of those, but clearly he has those in mind for us and he has those in mind for his original audience. The, these glaring details Mark doesn't even mention point us to this 
um, to this kind of reality. That when, um, when we think about what Jesus invites us to in our lives and the path that we're on, he is, he is asking us to leave control over the outcomes in his hand. Um, you know, he's going to do that. Jesus is going to do that in conversation with Peter and with, with John, where Peter asks, you know, what, what, what about, you know, what's going to happen to this guy? Um, and, and, and it's, I think, even the fact that none of that is even directly addressed in this passage. Um, we don't have the ultimate sovereignty and control over the outcomes in our lives. And uh, there is a, a significant, a significant, significant call in this text. The reason I think that Mark places, he places the beheading of John the Baptist right next to the sending of these disciples out is to make us soberly consider what we should expect in our following of Jesus, in our discipleship, in our pursuit of him. And I mean, what we do with that so often is we look at our circumstances and see the injustice we sense in them and and, and we want to take control of the outcomes. Um, we don't like the things that are happening so much in our lives right now, and we struggle with that deeply. And we shouldn't be surprised that the story goes that direction sometimes. Uh, we should certainly, the, the point of this text is not for us to rejoice in the execution of John the Baptist. It was evil. It was criminal. It was, in, in just, it was injustice, absolutely. Uh, and yet, it wasn't inconsistent with a life following Jesus. And we need, to, we need to depend, repent, and surrender in these ways. Let's pray. Lord, give us, give us faith uh, for us to, uh, to look at our circumstances in a way um, that is consistent with what we've seen here uh, from your disciples, from from Mark's instruction as he's recounted these stories, uh, from, uh, from the very work that you've done by your Spirit to preserve and to reveal these truths to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would grant us faith, strengthen our faith. Uh, Lord, we, um, we believe, but we ask you to help our unbelief in these things as we seek to depend on you, to turn away from our sin, and to surrender the outcomes to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.